Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The recent monkeypox outbreak started in May and hasn't slowed down. Coming up, we learn more about this virus from how it spreads to who is eligible for vaccination. Dr. Celine Gounder joins us. She's senior fellow at the Kaiser Family Foundation. Now, what questions do you have about monkeypox? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. That conversation coming up in a few minutes. First, Connecticut Mirror's Mark Pasniokas called it. On Monday, he told Where We Live it would be a sleepy primary due to low voter turnout. But many were surprised by the upset in the three-way Republican primary for U.S. Senate. Leora Levy beating one of the more prominent Republicans in the state, former House Minority Leader Themis Claridus, who was also the party's endorsed candidate. She beat her by 10 percentage points. Now, Governor Lamont, who's running against Bob Stefanowski, put it this way. Uh, I was surprised uh, to some degree by what happened last night. I was surprised that a Donald Trump made such a difference in a Republican Party. And as you point out, I think he has an exclusionary type of politics. You're with me or against me. I think he's divisive. I think he leaves a lot of people behind, including the independents and moderate Republicans that you just referenced. Now, Connecticut Public's Matt Dwyer was at Leora Levy's headquarters primary night and said Levy appeared stunned by Tuesday night's victory when she appeared before a cheering crowd of supporters in her hometown of Greenwich. Now, just days prior, she was endorsed by former President Donald Trump while at a Republican town committee event. And on Monday, Trump joined Levy on a phone call the same day his Mar-a-Lago estate was searched by the FBI as part of an investigation into whether he took classified records from the White House to his Florida residence. Now, Levy made a point to bring Trump up during her victory speech. Thank you, President Trump, for your strong, clear, unequivocal endorsement, your belief in me. You know, I'm so honored that you have have chosen to support me and and that you to have your confidence and I will not let you down. And now she moves on to face longtime incumbent Democratic U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal. Joining us now on Zoom is Wesley Renfro, who's professor of political science at Quinnipiac University. Uh, Wesley, welcome to the show. Good morning. So there's been a lot of talk about how um, this Trump endorsement of Leora Levy may have helped her in this uh, summer primary. What are your thoughts here? So I think it's very fair to say that it certainly didn't hurt her. It's a little difficult to tease out the impact of the primary because, frankly, there are, excuse me, the, of the endorsement because, you know, there was no polling in this primary. Um and we were sort of going by gut feelings and name recognition. But when we look sort of empirically at the weight of Trump's endorsements, you know, they do sometimes align with the winning candidate. But especially recently, there have been a number of somewhat notable non-endorsed candidates that have prevailed against Trump-endorsed candidates. So overall, the record's a little bit mixed, and it's hard to say with certainty in this particular case. 
There's also a lot of scrutiny, of course, on the fact that Connecticut's primary happens the second week of August. Again, vacation time. We know that unaffiliateds uh, definitely outnumber Democrats and uh, Republicans in our state. And so when we think about who's showing up uh, to vote, it's uh, most likely the partisans uh, that are coming out. And that's why we see low numbers, Wes. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. Low turnout elections, and this is certainly one of them, you know, really favor folks who are politicos, who are into party politics at state and local levels. And so I think that the types of GOP voters who showed up on Tuesday are the folks who are generally most receptive to a Trump endorsement. And so I think it's sort of this combination of, you know, Trump endorsement plus who showed up in what numbers at the polls that explains this upset. Mm. And what about the candidate herself? Uh, when we think about candidate quality, uh, this is someone um, that appealed to the conservative base. You know, uh, several years ago, she was a Jeb Bush supporter. She's made previous remarks against Donald Trump back then. Even her opinion has changed on abortion. And so I'm wondering if you can reconcile all of that into how uh, Republican voters are looking at her today. So I think there's two things embedded in your question. And the first is overall candidate quality. And the second is sort of her evolution uh, with different policies over time. On the first, I think that she's a quite good candidate. She has a compelling personal story. I think one that resonates, especially with conservative voters. Um, She speaks well. I think that overall she ran a pretty good campaign. Um, It is true that this is a person who in the not so recent past had much more moderate GOP uh, policy positions. She's someone who I believe was previously pro-choice and who in 2015, 2016 uh, was not a supporter of Donald Trump. All that being said, you know, post 2016, we see a remaking of the Republican party in which many folks who were never Trumpers have happily hopped on the Trump train and show no signs of exiting. Um, And voters seem to have largely forgotten that. I think this election is a snapshot in time, what she says now and not what she said, you know, five or 10 years ago. Mm. And when we think about the Republican Party, what about Connecticut's Republican Party? What does this say? The endorsed candidate, of course, was a moderate, Themis Claridis. She did not prevail in this primary. And now uh, wondering what your thoughts on, you know, how the party comes together. And we think about, you know, the makeup of this party. And again, for those Republicans who may see themselves as moderates in the state of Connecticut, also many who are unaffiliated. So there's certainly more strife in the Republican Party now than there has been for a couple years. And I think we see that nationally and also in Connecticut. You know, Connecticut has a long history of sort of more moderate Republican politics, although in the past couple years, there's certainly been a strong populist pro-Trump, harder right element to the party. I'm a little reluctant to say that based on these quite low turnout numbers that the entire party is entirely aligned with Trump. I think there are a lot of more moderate, perhaps more socially liberal, but fiscally conservative Republican-leaning individuals in the state. I'm not sure that they showed up on Tuesday, um, but I think it is a signal that enthusiasm among sort of diehard Trump supporters remains very high. 
I saw a tweet on primary night I wanted to share because the the flip side is how Democrats are seeing uh, the uh, the outcome of this three-way Republican uh, race for U.S. Senate. Uh, someone uh, tweeted, Blumenthal won't have to spend two nickels to be reelected. Your thoughts on uh, Leora Levy's chances here in November, Wes? Yeah, I, I, I think they're slim. Um, frankly, I think that feminist, feminist Claritus's chances were also on the slim side, though not as slim as uh, Leora's. You know, there's certainly an incumbency advantage. There are uh, far more Democrats than there are Republicans in the state, although there are a significant number of unaffiliated voters. This is a place that hasn't elected a Republican to the Senate in a long time. Richard Blumenthal is well known, has a lot of name recognition. And although this nationally, I think, will be a pretty good year for Republicans, I don't think his seat was ever in a lot of danger, and I think that it's in less danger now than it would have been had the outcome swung the other way. Uh, we mentioned uh, Republicans haven't held uh, a seat in uh, Connecticut for some time. Uh, CT News Junkie uh, reported that since 1982, a Republican has not held a U.S. Senate seat in Connecticut. Uh, you know, moving on to some of the other uh, primary um, races that we saw on the Democratic side, you know, a few years ago, there was a lot of attention on the fact that Connecticut hasn't had any state constitutional officers of color except former Treasurer Denise Napier. You know, this year's primary could change that. So what was your take on um, who ran in the Secretary of the State race and the Treasurer's race on the Democratic side and who prevailed? You know, so Stephanie Thomas, I think, was the favorite on the Democratic side and is, you know, uh, a representative of color. I think there's been a lot of mobilization in those communities, uh, certainly nationally and also locally. Um, I think she ran a good campaign and that's really reflected in a pretty lopsided victory. Um, on the state treasurer, I think it's in some ways the same story. Eric Russell is uh, both a person of color and uh, I believe uh, a member of the LGBTQ community um, who ran a good campaign, had some party endorsements, is, is, is well known. And it's nice to see that we have some representation. Now, of course, all eyes on the general election in November, certainly um, the outcome or expectation there'll be much greater turnout when we think about you know, national issues. Uh, for the primary, I believe about 15% of state Democrats turned up to vote and it was 21% on the Republican side. And so what will you be looking uh, for in the next few months uh, in this campaign season, Wes? You know, I'm looking to see if there's much action at all. I mean, the November ballot here, I think, will be relatively sleepy for some of the reasons that I cited before, um, including Democrat incumbents. Um, I also think that some of the things that have motivated folks in places like Kansas, right, sort of post Dobbs Fuhrer over abortion and other social issues might motivate voters, but because they are not in doubt, at least at the state level in Connecticut, I'm not entirely sure how they will um, play out. So. I'm anticipating sort of a, a quiet electoral cycle, but I'll be on the lookout for uh, upsets and, and, and things that might make it a little bit more exciting. Mm. And I want to plug Connecticut Public is going to be hosting several debates uh, in the congressional and Senate races, as well as some of these statewide races. And so you can learn more in the coming uh, weeks. And we hope our listeners uh, check that out as well. I want to thank uh, Wesley Renfro for being on Where We Live to do a little bit of a primary wrap up for us. Again, he's professor of political science at Quinnipiac University. Wes, thanks for your time. Thank you.
Coming up after the break, we're going to pivot to monkeypox and public health emergency. What questions do you have? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Share a comment on Facebook or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygen it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Top federal health officials say monkeypox is a public health emergency after cases of monkeypox, a rare disease, continues to spread here and in more than 50 countries. As of this morning, the Centers for Disease Control says there are nearly 10,400 confirmed cases in the U.S. and Connecticut. 54 cases have been confirmed. Now, coming up, we'll learn about how Connecticut organizations are responding, including our state government, when we talk about vaccine access and education about monkeypox. Now, what questions do you have? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can share a comment on Facebook or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us now on Zoom is Dr. Celine Gounder. She's Senior Fellow at the Kaiser Family Foundation, an infectious disease specialist and epidemiologist, and she was a member of the Biden-Harris Transition COVID Advisory Board. Dr. Gounder, welcome to our show. It's great to be here. Now, I mentioned uh, at the top that this is a rare disease, and so can you give us a little bit of history of monkeypox and, and then update us on how this outbreak started? I don't think people paid all that much attention to monkeypox until after its close cousin smallpox was eradicated. And it's because uh, the presentation of those illnesses were fairly similar, could also be um, confused with chickenpox, where you get these uh, pustules all over the body and then they scab over. Uh, the good news is monkeypox is not nearly as deadly as smallpox, but we really started to become more aware of it um, after smallpox was eradicated in 1980. And at that time, it was largely being transmitted or um, it was largely infecting young children in West Africa and Central Africa. And the thought was that they were coming into contact with wildlife, um, probably rodents, that were infected with monkeypox, um, perhaps playing outdoors, that sort of thing. And it was pretty sporadic. Uh, There was 
very low level of transmission within a household. Uh, prior studies showed probably less than 10% of cases led to transmission to others in the household. And then you start to see a new pattern emerge around 2016, 2017. And this is in Nigeria, where you start to see the demographics change. So it, start, it becomes uh, men who are in their 20s and 30s, um, much more in urban areas all of a sudden. And many of them are professionals, um, as opposed to previously being kids, rural, um, poor. And what we're realizing in retrospect is that this was the beginning of transmission, sexual transmission among men who have sex with men. Gay sex is illegal in Nigeria. And so this unfortunately went under the radar for several years. Some people did try to flag this, but it, it by and large went under the radar until there was spillover into other populations, starting with Europe and then, of course, the U.S. and other countries around the world uh, this year. Now, why has it now been declared a public health emergency? At what point, uh, when we think about uh, that this is a, a something that, that needs to have a designation, Dr. Gounder? Well, a few things. One, we're seeing exponential growth in cases, um, so they're really rising quite rapidly. Um, and we know that, you know, you mentioned the 10,000 number of cases in the U.S. That's definitely an underestimate. Um, we're under-diagnosing, under-testing uh, for a whole host of reasons, and so the true numbers are significantly higher. And some people might say, well, you know, I'm not at risk. So why should I care? Um, I, you know, I think that's actually really short-sighted because it's only a matter of time before you do have spillover into other populations. This is an infectious disease that right now is largely being driven by sexual transmission, but there are other ways this disease can be transmitted. Uh, it involves close skin-to-skin -skin contact, and there are other forms of skin-to-skin -skin contact. For example, um, a caregiver, whether that's a day caregiver or somebody working in a nursing home, um, also has intimate contact, skin-to-skin uh, -skin contact that's not sexual but could lead to transmission. Um, and so we are concerned that there will eventually be spillover. If you look at other infectious diseases, let's say HIV, which is similar in that it can be sexually transmitted, but it may also be transmitted in other ways, for example, from mother to child or through needles, through blood transfusions. Um, and so this is something that is, one, it's, it is a major public health issue for um, gay and bisexual men and trans women, but it's also um, critical that we contain it as quickly as possible because it could become a real public health threat to other populations as well. When we think about the tools that public health officials have, like yourself, Dr. Gander, as an epidemiologist and infectious disease specialist, and again, the fact that um, the World Health Organization and now the U.S. Uh, calling this a, a public health emergency, you know, we think about the tools, so testing, lack of uh, maybe access to the vaccine. Is it fair to say that we should not have gotten to this point where we now have to declare a public health emergency? I'm wondering if you can peel back the curtain here. Yeah, so, you know, there's also been a similar conversation in COVID, right? We have the tools, quote unquote. Well, it doesn't really help you to have the tools if you're not implementing, if you're not making use of the tools, if people can't access the tools. So if people are not able to access providers who can make the diagnosis, who um, are willing to um, get them tested, to get them treatment, um, if we don't have the supply of vaccine to get everybody vaccinated, um, and if people are just not also informed and aware, 
the tools, quote unquote, are not going to really have much of an impact. And so we are seeing a lot of barriers in terms of um, providers uh, not testing as much as they should be. Some of that was due to um, inadequate laboratory capacity early on. That has mostly been fixed now, but it's also a lot of, um, it's really tedious, frankly, for a medical provider to uh, get all of the different specimens. You have to fill out a lab requisition slip for every single uh, swab you take. You have to send that off to the lab, and that takes a lot of time. So in some cases, some providers are preferring to wait um, until they send off other easier things to test for first. In terms of the treatment, that's also a lot of paperwork. There's this uh, drug called TPOX. And not everybody's willing to do the paperwork. And then with the vaccines, we, we really do have a short supply and are trying to figure out how to spread that short supply uh, as widely as we can. When you mentioned vaccines, uh, the New York Times reporting uh, earlier this month that the federal government's now distributing about 1.1 million doses. That's uh, less than a third of what health officials estimate is needed to fight the outbreak. And I believe uh, the next delivery, uh, half a million doses, not expected until September, October, Dr. Gounder. What more can you tell us? Yeah, so it's, it's also a two-dose vaccine. And so what we want to do is at the very least reach the highest risk among um, men who have sex with men. And so those would be those uh, who are having anonymous sex partners, who are having multiple sex partners, um, who maybe already have HIV, um, who have had known contacts uh, with monkeypox cases. Those are going to be the people at highest risk. But at the same time, um, and, and so those those are the numbers that are used um, for the, when the CDC makes estimates of how much vaccine we need. The problem is many more people than that are actually trying to get vaccinated. That's uh, what I just described. That highest risk group is probably only a fraction of all men who have sex with men, and yet you have many other um, gay and bisexual men and trans women who are stepping up, wanting to get vaccinated. And so you really have to multiply sort of that number by several fold um, to meet that need. You're hearing Dr. Celine Gounder, senior fellow at the Kaiser Family Foundation. She's an infectious disease specialist and epidemiologist as we talk about the monkeypox outbreak and learning more about this virus. If you have questions, you can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, we've spent some time talking on the policy end of this, but in terms of, of breaking it down for our listeners about the symptoms of monkeypox, could you uh, tell us more? Sure. The, the most common symptoms are going to be fever, enlarged lymph nodes. Um, so that could be in the neck, it could be in the armpit, the groin. Those are the most common places to have enlarged lymph glands, lymph nodes. And then um, the, the rash, the characteristic rash. And so that rash generally starts with um, flat red spots on the skin or on mucosal surfaces. Those then become fluid-filled blisters, which then evolve into um, pus-filled uh, pustules that look like um, that look like pimples, and then those uh, break open and scab over, and then you have new skin that grows up underneath. And it's not until the scabs fall off and you have new skin growth underneath that you're considered uh, no longer infectious or contagious to other people. Those lesions can be really anywhere on the body or on mucosal surfaces. So mucosal surfaces include the eye, the inside the nose, inside the mouth. 
parts of the genitalia and the anus. And what um, we're seeing in particular with this outbreak is because it's sexually transmitted, it's the parts of the body um, that people um, have close contact during sex. So uh, we're seeing lesions in or around the mouth, the uh, genitalia, and the anus. And some of those lesions are exceedingly painful. Uh, and so we're seeing patients who are requiring hospital admission just for pain control. And are those symptoms typical for people who contract monkeypox? Is it possible that you could have it and not um, show a certain rash? I'm just wondering if you can talk about that. Yeah, and this is something we're still trying to figure out is, is there such a thing as asymptomatic monkeypox, so monkeypox without symptoms? Um, and if so, how common is that? And we just don't know. Um, there do seem to be people who have very mild symptoms um, and who may confuse their symptoms with maybe a herpes outbreak or not even thinking that there's anything wrong. Um, and so that is going to require more research uh, screening, testing of people to figure out if that truly does happen, and, and if so, how how frequently it could happen. Um, somebody could be infected without symptoms. Now, if you do get monkeypox, how long do these symptoms last? How long does someone have to to quarantine before they're not contagious anymore, Doctor Gounder? Yeah, it ranges um, anywhere from two to four weeks. Uh, you know, if you think about, you have these skin lesions that. You have to have um, break open, scab over, and then have new skin growth underneath. Some of these can take a while to heal. And so it's really challenging. You know, people have trouble isolating for COVID for five days. I mean, think about four weeks of isolation. That's a pretty heavy lift for a lot of people. Um, and it's even harder if you have to then, uh, for example, disclose to your employer, I have monkeypox and I need four weeks off to isolate. So we do need to have better systems to support people to do the right thing um, and isolate without fear of uh, issues at work and being able um, still to collect wages. Hmm. That sounds problematic when we think about the last two and a half years, Dr. Gander. Those systems weren't even in place for people with COVID. And now we're looking at this other uh, public health emergency. You know, how concerned are you here? I am. I am concerned. Um, you know, we are one of the few developed countries in the world that does not have paid sick and family medical leave uh, for everyone. And that, that's really what it would take to expect people to truly take time off work or from time off school or ha keep kids home, for example, if they happen to have an infection. Um, you really need to provide people with the support. Uh, to make that possible so that they don't have to choose between their livelihood, their their wages. It's not going to cost them something to do the right thing and isolate. Again, you can join us if you have a question about monkeypox, 888-720-9677. We heard Dr. Gounder uh, talk about the population that is most impacted right now, uh, men having sex with men. But as you have said, Dr. Gounder, a few times now, anyone can get monkeypox. And so I'm wondering if you can talk more about um, how um, you know people should be, you know, whether they should be concerned if the, it can be spread through sharing services like a public bathroom or with school just around the corner. And we know how viruses um, spread from one child to the next. And so how, how concerned should we be? Yeah, I think people are um, perhaps a bit paranoid about the kinds of exposures that can lead to transmission. So it's not from sitting on a toilet seat 
or touching a doorknob or a faucet, it does require significant exposure, um, direct skin-to-skin contact or skin-to-mucosal contact. It does require um, enough virus exposure for long enough. And so that's just not going to happen with those sort of casual exposures, sitting next to somebody on the subway, um, you know, that kind of thing. And, and in terms of kids at school, um, where the risk is going to be highest is really at the daycare uh, youngest kid age group, where you may have uh, child care providers who say are changing diapers and, you know, really attending to the kids' um, physical and um, hygienic needs as opposed to, you know, a teacher in the classroom is not going to have that kind of contact with students. I guess I'm thinking of, you know, of a family that has children of multiple ages. You know, if a child were to get it in a child care facility, uh, they have older siblings. And so, you know, what uh, parents and providers should be looking for, Dr. Gounder? Yeah, so in terms of the risk, based on the studies we've seen in, in um, from Central and Western Africa, where, as I mentioned, you know, earlier earlier on, it was largely in young kids. And even then, it was only in about 10% of cases that that initial infection in that first kid would get transmitted to anybody else in the household. So it is relatively low risk. It's pretty inefficient in terms of transmission as opposed to the sexual transmission that we're currently seeing. Um, And what should parents be looking for? It's the same symptoms. Um, So it would be the fever, the swollen lymph glands, the Skin rash, which, as I mentioned earlier, could be confused with chickenpox. That's probably what um, it most looks like for, for parents who are familiar with that. Could also be confused with herpes. So, having this rash of um, initially red spots that evolve into uh, eventually um, pimples and then scab over. That you know, if, if you see anything that resembles that, um, to talk to your pediatrician. Um, to get your child tested would be would be the wise thing to do. But big picture, if people are washing hands, they practice good hygiene, it's going to be very low risk for transmission in the household. Again, we're learning more about monkeypox. Uh, you can join us, 888-720-9677. Coming up in just a few minutes, we're going to hear more about how uh, Connecticut officials and nonprofits are working to educate people about monkeypox as well as provide the vaccine to those populations that need it the most right now. Uh, you know, earlier this week, we've been talking a lot about um, some of the symptoms, and that includes uh, looking for a rash, Dr. Gounder. Uh, but we'd heard on Connecticut public, a Yale infectious disease expert saying that uh, people should just avoid contact with strange looking rashes. And we were wondering, you know, does that stigmatize individuals that might already have a rash for something completely unrelated to monkeypox? There was this high profile uh, story of a woman that had a um, that had a skin condition and people taking pictures and posting it on on TikTok. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that. Yeah, those, this is a woman with neurofibromatosis, which is a genetic condition. It is not infectious. And so that was highly stigmatizing, you know, accusing this woman of having monkeypox and, and putting other people at risk. And she simply did not have an infectious condition, condition um, monkeypox or otherwise. Um, you know, I don't think the lay public should take it upon themselves uh, to be Dr. Google <laughs> and try to diagnose other people. Um you know, even me as a medical provider, just looking at it, I can't necessarily make that diagnosis. I really would need to take some swabs, send that to the lab, 
ask them to test for monkeypox as well as, you know, some other possibilities. And without that, it's really hard to give a definitive diagnosis. There are any number of conditions um, that can cause rashes that are not infectious, everything from psoriasis to eczema to cancer. And so just because somebody has something on their skin doesn't mean it's monkeypox. And what about uh, concern when I talk about stigma, you know, how this um, has been discussed uh, in the media, in the public, uh, and how this disease uh, could further stigmatize or cause discrimination in the LGBTQ population? Well, we've already seen some of that. We've seen um, some members of the LGBTQ community assaulted already um, and harassed because of monkeypox. And I think that really speaks to um, fear of the unknown and uh, what we see in infectious disease outbreak after infectious disease outbreak is marginalized communities getting blamed and scapegoated uh, for for that outbreak. And we saw this uh, most recently prior to monkeypox with COVID. Early in the COVID pandemic, uh, early in 2020, we saw Asian Americans being uh, harassed and attacked and blamed for the COVID pandemic. Uh, we just have a few minutes left. Dr. Celine Gounder, again, Senior Fellow at the Kaiser Family Foundation. She's an infectious disease specialist and epidemiologist. I had mentioned there are nearly 10,400 confirmed cases. You said that that's an uh, underestimation. There's probably more in the U.S. In Connecticut, we've got, I think, 54 cases that have been confirmed. I mean, what are you going to be watching for in the next few weeks? And should we expect that the numbers are going to continue to grow um, or, are, you know, is public health on going to be able to be on top of this in terms of getting that vaccine and, and testing available in the next month or so? I do expect the numbers will grow. If you look at the pattern in the UK, it does seem that the growth has peaked and is now coming down. And how much of that is related to behavior change versus vaccination is important because if it's behavior change, I mean, as we know with COVID, people can change their behavior for a period of time, but it may not stick in the long run. So you might be able to get people to mask, for example, for a month or a couple months. But you know, a lot of people after a few months were really tired of doing that and stopped. And so similarly, you might be able to get people to change their sexual behaviors for some period of time, but not indefinitely. And so what we're, we're very much looking out for with the UK and for that matter, the US is, um, do you see um, this dropping or uh, a peak and then decreasing transmission? Is that because of other things like vaccination or is it really just behavior change? And, and that will predict how things continue to evolve. I think the other thing that's already been very concerning is if you look at the cases of monkeypox, they are disproportionately among um, men of color, men who have sex with men who are men of color. And they are not the ones who, by and large, are getting vaccinated. Um, and so we're already seeing a huge disparity between those who are truly impacted getting uh, infected and those who are getting vaccinated. And so that is a disparity um, we're very concerned about, particularly given vaccines but remain in shortage for the months. Again, you've been hearing Dr. Celine Gounder here on the show, Senior Fellow at the Kaiser Family Foundation. I should mention she's also Editor-at-Large for Public Health at Kaiser Health News, uh, which is a great resource. Thank you for spending time with us today, Dr. Gounder. We appreciate it. My pleasure. 
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. Coming up, we're going to hear about access to the monkeypox vaccine in our state and how local groups are responding uh, to improve access as well as educate people about monkeypox. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Today we're learning more about the monkeypox virus as cases continue to grow in the U.S. and in Connecticut. Joining our conversation now on Zoom is Kay Perkins, who's a reporter with Connecticut Public Radio. Kay's been covering uh, this story uh, from the Connecticut angle. Kay, welcome to our show. Hi, thanks for having me. And so what has the outbreak looked like in Connecticut? Well, there haven't been a ton of cases. Um, As you said earlier, we have over 50 right now, but the growth is not nearly as extreme as it was, for example, COVID. Um, But obviously, a lot of people are still very concerned. Mm. Uh, We heard Dr. Gounder earlier talking about um, spillover and how uh, this moved from uh, Europe then to the U.S. So when we think about how we're uh, located, uh, Kay, so close to New York and that being an epicenter, and that's why we're seeing these cases now coming over to Connecticut, what are officials uh, talking about in terms of this outbreak? Right. Uh, U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal talked a bit about this last week at a press conference. Um, He spoke about the fact that, as we saw with COVID, when there is a disease spreading in New York, obviously you've got people commuting in from Connecticut or just traveling in between New York and Connecticut. We usually find a lot of spillover into Connecticut. So obviously officials are pretty concerned about that. And as far as um, access to vaccine, uh, what can you tell us in terms of how much supply there is in Connecticut and and who's able to access it, Kate? Right. So there are about 4,000 doses that have been allocated for Connecticut. Um, It's important to remember that it's a two-dose vaccine. So that's about 2,000 people who could be covered by the vaccine. About 700 have been administered so far, um, and there are about 3,500 doses remaining. And obviously, this is just not enough to cover the number of people who would want to get vaccinated. Uh, As of right now, the administration efforts are focused on, again, men having sex with men, also trans women, gender non-conforming people, and non-binary people. Um, And they are concentrating distribution for people who are very sexually active, having, you know, two or more sex partners within the last 14 days or having anonymous sex partners, you know, but again, that those are not the only people who can contract monkeypox. So it's, it's really the, the vaccine supply is just not enough to fight the outbreak. And we think about um, how to get the vaccine. Uh, state public health officials are relying on nonprofits and, and health clinics uh, to get that um, to residents, Kay? Right. There's about 13 vaccine and testing clinics across the state. Um, a lot of them are clinics that have already worked with LGBT folks specifically. Uh, but again, only only 13 spots across the state, not necessarily as readily accessible as we might like. 
You're hearing Kay Perkins on the show. She's a reporter with Connecticut Public as we talk about monkeypox in Connecticut and how officials are getting the vaccine out to residents. Connecticut Public recently spoke with Christopher Marsala, who was getting the monkeypox vaccine at the Fairhaven Community Healthcare. Uh, let's hear what he had to say. But as soon as I saw that first clinic pop up, I, I just really wanted to get an appointment just because I feel very grateful that there's a lot of community health care available um, to many populations across the state. And especially just knowing that it's, it's critical to be part of the solution and, and being able to have empowered agency with healthcare that makes me feel really great. Just knowing, you know what, I can come in, I have the, the resources and community support to get a vaccine. It's really huge. Mm. So you'd said earlier, Kay, that there are about 13 clinics that have the vaccine. Is it expected? What are you hearing from public health uh, officials in our state? You know, could this vaccine be um, available at a primary care doctor office? Isn't enough of the vaccine for that to happen um, with only 3,500 doses? You know, if you divide that up by 13 clinics, that's, you know, a, a couple hundred doses per clinic. So there just isn't enough supply right now. I know that uh, Richard Blumenthal mentioned that the federal government said that once that vaccine supply that we currently have has been exhausted, they will send more. But as of right now, I don't I don't think we can expect <clears throat> primary care physicians to have the vaccine. Right. And, and the federal government saying that another shipment of this vaccine not expected till September, even October. Uh, again, uh, Kay Perkins is with us. And joining us now is Linda Estabrook, who's executive director of the Hartford Gay and Lesbian Health Collective. Uh, Linda, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Lucy. Glad so, to be here. Uh, tell us, thank you. And tell us about how uh, your, your organization is working to get uh, the vaccine uh, to people that you serve. So this is a a day-to-day prospect um, and for um, all of us who are getting the vaccine uh, to administer in the state, we don't necessarily know uh, day-to-day or week-to-week how much vaccine we'll be getting to then be able to um, schedule people to uh, for them to get the vaccine. So we, as I said, it's a day-to-day thing. And so uh, we have to visit our our scheduling and our availability. Uh, Last week we had maxed out, this week we do have more vaccine. Um, Each of the sites in the state gets vaccine from a designated hospital and the designated hospital gets their supply determined from the Department of Public Health in the state and also the, the CDC. And so while they're there, we had conversations earlier this week about setting up uh, uh, an acquisition schedule for a certain number of doses to plan on each week. The hospital doesn't know how many doses they're getting, and so they can't plan. We can't plan. So we do the best with our planning and getting, um, you know, schedules set up to give people the vaccine. Are you hearing a lot of response from the community, people who want it and are calling you? Or I'm just wondering if you can talk about that, Linda. Yes. So um, Monday morning of last week, um, and actually even some days before, people started calling us. And our our phone lines got uh, jammed. um, And we're in the process of adding actually additional phone lines so that we can we can 
not only take care of incoming calls, but outgoing calls. And it took until the beginning of this week for um, uh, for us to get through the backlog of like well over 150 voice messages from people um, calling to want to schedule to get a vaccine. Um, you know, one of the things that we're making clear to people is there are multiple sites. And if you can't get an appointment with us that works for you, contact other sites um, and and find a location and, and find a time that can work for you to be able to get the vaccine. But we're, it slowed some this, this week, but we still have, um, we're still getting calls and people wanted to be uh, vaccinated. But there was that initial influx last week that, that like, Wow, this is a lot to handle all at once. So, but we uh, we've made our way through that. How do people know where to go or who to call, uh, Linda? You'd mentioned uh, if, if people are looking for the vaccine, is there a place online where that information is is, is available? I wonder if you can tell our listeners more there. The the um, the state of Connecticut Department of Public Health has um, uh, part of their website that is devoted to monkeypox um and including vaccines and where to get vaccines and so they're maintaining a list there um and uh and we have links from our site to the department of public health site so that people can find information um through us too we were able to set up a monkeypox uh page on our website um it's hglhc.org and so we're we're working to maintain that website as um up to date as possible you know given the you know the regular changes that uh happen and so we we have some information that is a little bit distilled down versus you can get you know pages of information from health departments and from the CDC that it takes a while to like read through. So we're just putting the highlights along with links. And when people call us, we're, we're as needed, we're redirecting them to the other sites that we know um, are providing the vaccine. And Linda, we'll be sure to share those links as well at where we Great. live. Uh, we just have a couple of minutes left. Uh, something that uh, Dr. Celine Gounder shared uh, before uh, we said goodbye to her is that when we think about who is contracting a monkeypox, uh, she said men having sex with men, uh, people of color, and there's a problem with, again, vaccine access. And so I'm wondering if you can talk about that from your perspective. It's... You know, there there are the requirements, the criteria in Connecticut in order to receive the vaccine if you um, have had a known exposure, somebody who tested uh, positive for monkeypox, you're a priority person. And then, um, as the doctor was mentioning, the various criteria of having multiple or anonymous sexual partners in the last 14 days. Um and so it, 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 the, um, the, vac- the vaccine is, it, it takes time for it to be effective. It's not an immediate fix. And that's a really important educational piece that needs to get out there over and over and over again, that it takes two shots and 
Um, if you're getting one shot today and then another shot in four weeks, it's not until two weeks after that that you become what's considered to, to, to have a be fully effective. And so it doesn't protect people immediately. Um, you can't get the vaccine today and be safe, in quotes, for taking a, a, a trip someplace to, you know, you know, people are going to P-Town for the weekend. This is not going to take care of this. Um, prevention is still a really important and best way to avoid getting monkeypox. And so we have to get all of those messages out to people because there isn't enough vaccine available, as the doctor was saying, if everybody's getting two shots, it, it limits the, the number of people. And so that's why there are limitations and it not just being broadly put out there as like a pre-exposure prophylaxis type of um, uh, treatment. It's an after a, a, a for sure exposure or a presumed exposure. And when you talk about the emphasis on prevention and so important to bring awareness about monkeypox without stigmatizing uh, men having sex with men, uh, Linda, you know, how you're getting mm -hmm. that message across. It's, it can be a balance and a fine line. And at the, you know, it's important to let people know that you are in a population that is at risk because of various behaviors and interactions. And like one of our first messages that we put out there weeks ago, if you are close enough with somebody to be able to get syphilis or gonorrhea, you're close enough to get monkeypox. Um, and, um, and people need to pay attention to who they're involved with sexually, intimately, um, and you know what, what this um, disease can look like, but it's just by looking at, as the doctor was saying earlier about the lay public, <laughs> you know, it's, this disease is not presenting in a consistent way, even for the medical professionals. So the lay public, whether they're trying to protect themselves or, you know, she was talking about the, 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 the people with um, more hate in their hearts than anything else and cruelty. Um, you know, they're not going to be able to, to diagnose this from mm. afar either. Um, and so we have to give out consistent messages. Uh, one of the things that we started to do this week is with everybody that we're providing the vaccine to, we're following up with a phone call in a couple of days. So how are you? How, you know, how's it going? Reminder that and they need to refrain. That's really good to hear, Linda. You know? that, that follow-up is important. Unfortunately, yes. we're out of time, but I do appreciate yes. your time on the show. Linda Estabrook, Executive Director of the Hartford Gay and Lesbian Health Collective. Also, thanks to Kay Perkins, reporter with Connecticut Public, for joining us. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible with help from Anya Grandolski.